This podcast contains some very open conversations about parenthood and mental health, so there may be some content that listeners might find triggering or upsetting. Please listen at your own discretion, and for help or support, look at the episode description for resources. And please do. Asking for help was the best thing I ever did. I'm Laura Dockrell, and this is Zombie Mum, a podcast that aims to normalise the conversation surrounding mental health and parenthood, hearing voices from the perspective of both parents and children for some empathetic, compassionate, heartbreaking, heartwarming, real talk. On today's episode, I chat with Denise Welsh. Denise is an actor, broadcaster, author and mental health advocate. She's a proud mum, sister, friend, daughter and wife to supportive and loving husband Lincoln. Let's be honest, Denise Welsh is Denise bloody Welsh. I've grown up with her on my TV. She's one of those iconic women that we all know and think of as a constant, a lighthouse, robust, resilient, reliable, bright, sunny and unbreakable. Somebody that helps others. But when Denise began to show her true self by sharing her own vulnerabilities, she also showed her true power. I got to know Denise because she wrote to my partner Hugo after reading an interview he did, speaking of his experience with our postpartum psychosis adventure. And I had no idea that I was about to become friends with such a loving, human, giving and hell of a woman. Denise's moving memoir, The Unwelcome Visitor, normalises maternal mental illness. Heartbreaking and desperate, and yet comforting and full of hope, she speaks of huge themes, deep, dark, catatonic depression, suffering, struggle, torment and illness, and yet there is so much warmth. This feeling that she gets love and life and all the bloody mess and complications of it, and that she really is your friend, talking to you frankly over a cup of tea. There are many crossovers between Denise's experience and my own. We were the same age when we got unwell, both with our firstborns, and yet I had to remind myself that Denise was suffering when there was even more silence, shame and stigma surrounding mental illness. It just goes to show how remarkable this woman is, living proof that you absolutely can and will get better. Truly astonishing to see what a human, when faced with a challenge, can do. So sit down. Buckle up, as Denise is a firecracker on this subject matter. Or if you were planning on taking a casual jog or walk around the park to this boy, then speed up. Get ready to turbo blast as this chick is in the driver's seat. On today's episode, I speak with the almighty Denise Welsh. Denise, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I mean, we should just probably get straight to it. I mean, we are those kind of people. Reading your book is and somebody that obviously I've grown up with, like knowing that you exist. We've got lots of friends in common. And then just a, a normal, well, bedazzling, amazing woman getting through it, writing about it, surviving. I just want to say thank you. We've had so many parallels of our stories. Well, we have. I mean, I think you're pretty much exactly half my age. You're the same age as Matty. My eldest, and of course, this is where my problems began. So for those people who don't know anything about me, I had my first child when I was 31. He's now 31, um, coming up 32. People always say, and I know this, they will have said this to you, um, you must have had um, some kind of psychiatric illness in the past. You must have had some kind of depression. You must have suffered anxiety before. I did not. 
My pregnancy was one of the happiest times in my life. I was what they called then the typical blooming woman in pregnancy. My hair was great. My skin was great. I was in a very then happy marriage with the kid's dad, who I'm not with anymore, but, you know, we're still pals. But we were in it. We both desperately wanted a child. We had some money in the bank. So socially, there was everything for us, nothing really against us, you know. And we were both looking forward to this child. And I was feeling so good in my pregnancy that I wasn't one of these people that was like, oh God, just get this out of me. I actually wasn't bothered. Yes, I had indigestion. Yes, all those things. But, you know, and I was very lucky enough that my husband, I didn't have to really work through my pregnancy. I wasn't well known at the time. I was I was a rep actress. Um, so basically my career really was in theatre. I had this baby And um, it was a very long labor, 42 hours. And I had him naturally. That wasn't my choice. I had been having a really rough time at an NHS hospital, which politically I wanted to go to. But unfortunately, it was not a good experience. So we went privately and I kept saying to them, look, I know I've ended up at this natural childbirth hospital, but I didn't know it was when I came here. But, you know, there will be pain relief, won't they? And they were saying, Mrs. Healy, as I was at the time, this is not Victorian times. Fast forward to, please hit me over the head with a spiked mallet because they wouldn't give me any pain relief. Anyway, eventually he came out, a thriving eight pound baby boy. I was aware of things feeling a bit dreamlike, but I didn't put that down to anything other than this is a surreal thing. I've just given birth to a human being. And you probably hadn't slept properly as well. I hadn't slept. He wasn't the greatest sleeper at this time. But then, you know, it was just, this is what I expected. And when we got in, there was all the cards and flowers and I broke down in tears and I thought, this is the baby blues. I was emotional about my own shadow. All of those normal things that I knew about. My mum and dad came down on the Thursday and I had all my life pretty much looked forward to the day my mum and dad, who I'm very close to, my mum's sadly not here, but I have a very close family. I had looked forward to this and when they came, there was something not right. On that night, I went to bed and I had a panic attack and I'd never had a panic attack. And the panic attack was not anything relating to Matthew, nothing. I always try to make the analogy of describing it like as if you're going to have a car accident and then when you don't have one, you calm down. It was like that, never stopping. And when I went into the lounge after about two hours sleep, the whole lactation process, Laura, had stopped. So I had gone to bed with full boobs, full, massive, to nothing. I had more spaniels, ears, boobs than I had before I was pregnant. There was literally nothing in them. And the midwife came round, a midwife that I hadn't known because she was a community midwife, not attached to the hospital because they didn't offer that service. She went, oh, that's really serious. That doesn't normally happen unless a spouse or a baby or indeed a parent dies. Yeah, you're just going to have to go out and get him some bottles. I did. The next day, mum and I went to walk Matthew and we heard on the radio in a shop that it was the day of the Hillsborough disaster. And I came out of the shop and I remember this very lucidly. I said to mum, oh my God, this is awful. You know, there's 96 people died in this tragedy. By the time we walked home to the flat half a, half a mile away, mum asked me a question about the disaster. And I remember saying to her, that was a dream, mum. That didn't happen. Why are you trying to make me go mad? And mum thought, uh-oh. 
And um, we got in the house, a couple of my um, very close friends of mine were there. And all I remember thinking is, I want you to go, I want you to go. And I could feel this blackness creeping up my body like never before. They left. My mum said she walked into the lounge and this is where it goes into that I don't remember a lot. I was on the windowsill trying to climb out. When I eventually told this story years later, the press was saying, oh, Denise tried to commit suicide or or take her own life, I should say. I wasn't Laura. That was never in my mind. I just think I was trying in a slightly psychotic state at this point to stop the pain. I just remember thinking, who is this baby? Looking at the baby, thinking, why have I got this baby? And basically within an hour, I was in a black suicidal depression. And that was the start of my journey. I mean, you do what I do, I think, which is throwing yourself into also trying to understand this rather than running away from it. I mean, it's normal, right? We're going through some suffering. We want to get out. It's not enjoyable to feel discomfort. I mean, I was so incredibly lucky that I had the family that I had, Laura. And the reason that why ultimately I chose maybe 18 months later to speak out about it when given the opportunity against advice was that had I not had the family I had, I, without a doubt, either through purpose or accident, would not be probably here now. Because back in the day, this is 1989, the only reference we had was print media. Nobody in my position, a little bit famous, on the television was talking about it. Not in the UK, not to my knowledge. I couldn't find anything. Obviously, you know because you've been there, you're not in a position to go out and look for stuff. So all of the references I had was the front of the parent and baby magazines, which was the joyous family. There was one magazine that I had, and in it, it had references to anything that could go wrong. So if your baby had 10 feet, there was the 10 feet baby society that you could go to, God forbid. But you know what I mean? There was anything physical that could go wrong with you or the child. But then in the corner, it would say, if the baby blues, go on a little bit longer, phone your GP. Anyway, and that was it. Um, There was an address for the Association for Postnatal Illness. Now, a wonderful organisation, that may well have been. But I couldn't feed myself. I couldn't dress myself. The thought of actually composing a letter. But there was nobody for me to talk to. So my mum used to sit in a childlike way and stroke my hand and say, you will get better. And by being a mental health advocate for 30 years, self-appointed, I suppose, I have chosen in my way to say to people, you will get better. We went to this GP who I'd never met before, a GP woman, probably now about my age. I'm sitting there, my mum is talking for me. I can hardly talk, the blackness is so intense. I, she leant forward to me and she looked me in the eyes and she said, well, I had five children, dear, and I just didn't have time to get depressed, is what she said to me. That was the first of 30 years of pull yourself together. And my mum had to then take unpaid leave from work because she had to look after me. And because she was only going to be coming for a few days, she had brought this perfume with her, just one perfume. And it's not really made anymore, but over the years, if ever I walked past anybody smelling that perfume, it would start the panic and the anxiety in me, you know, because of that relating to that desperate time in my life. And people say to me, how long did you have postnatal depression for? And I kind of say, 
well, 31 years really, because with me, it never, it never went away. But I always want to talk, to reach out to people who may be listening to this or will listen to it and say, you know, that so many people who have what I had get better and make a complete and utter recovery. I mean, everything you're saying, I'm just like, my questions, I don't even need to ask them, boy, because you're just on there. I mean, I've got milk I had as a question written to you in massive circle because just going back there, because I was uh, hospitalised in general psych. Nobody explained to me the physical symptoms of what was going on. You know, I had a caesarean. Even if you have a caesarean, you're still bleeding. And then my boobs, they did exactly the same as yours. I think you're the only other person I've ever met who has had that thing with their boobs. And apparently, it is the biggest hormonal red flag that should have been to the midwife that came round to me that that would happen. Because I remember, you know, Jet was born underweight, he was under five pounds, and they kept taking, it all became about feeding Jet, so I'd have to set my alarm clock on all these obscene times, you know, it's all about feeding. And then I remember saying, I don't actually have the milk to do this. And they were almost going, well, that's impossible, you must have the milk. You know, when I'm saying now that I couldn't even fill with the syringe, I struggled with all of that... And then I'm thinking back, we've just, so Jet's nearly three, we've just weaned him off the milk and this whole process. And I remember saying to Hugo, my partner, I don't think this is just, I'm not being hippie here, but I said, this is not just about the milk. This is something else. This is an anxiety, I think, with Jet because he's desperate for it. He was born underway and this this whole thing with the milk, it's an emotional too. So when you were also speaking, I'm like, this is something he's also carried on through his life. Like actually then talking about the repercussions and effects, the ripple effect of that milk thing, of it not being spotted. You know, they used to talk about the breastfeeding, breastfeeding, breastfeeding all the time. And I used and I used to be the one that would put my hand up and say, listen, I think all of us here are intending to breastfeed and looking forward to it. But, you know, I don't want pressure put on me. Should it not be able to happen? Well, of course, when that did happen, there was pressure put on me. But then, of course, when I went to feed Matthew with the formulas, because what happened was I was almost incapable of getting off the settee. I lost two stone in three weeks. And my mum had to sit there feeding, trying to make me have those complans, you know, those food replacements. I literally used to wait until my medication, like I was in a hospital like Cuckoo's Nest. I wanted the medication. And the sad thing about life then was, and I know you feel the same, is that it was like a reverse nightmare. So whereas you normally go to bed, you have a horrible dream and you wake up and go, oh, thank God for that, it's okay. Mine was the reverse. I would go to bed, have a dream of my life before a baby and wake up and I was in the nightmare. I never wanted to harm my child. I never had the psychosis to the point that some poor women do, that they lose all sense. And I know your psychosis was huge. But I just didn't. I just wanted everything to go away. So when people say, were you suicidal? I say, not consciously. All I wanted was, I wanted a doctor to come around and give me an injection to make everything go away and that I wouldn't wake up from this unless I could wake up to be normal again. I'd say to my mum, I mean, I was 31, Laura, and I'd say, you do love me more than Matthew, don't you? Because my mum had said the word. She'd said, I always expected to love my grandchild, but I never expected the overwhelming love that came, almost like it did with you and Debbie, is what she said to me. And so she'd been kind of blindsided by this immediate love for this child. And I remember saying to her, you do love me more than Matty, don't you? And her saying, of course I do. I mean, God, what is that about? Do you know what I mean? And, it, and yet years, a few a couple of years later, I read in a postnatal depression pamphlet 
a childlike need for one's mum. And I'm going, oh my God, oh my God, it wasn't just me, it wasn't just me. So what you and I have done by writing these books and talking about it, it really does help because this little pamphlet from a postnatal group in the Lake District made me feel like at least there was one other person in the world who was a grown-up, who'd had a baby, wanted their mum like that. I was 31 too, and that how can you be a mum when you still need your own mum so badly? I know, I know, and imagine those people who don't have their mums, or indeed don't have anybody. I know I'm desperate to talk more about suicidal thoughts because I had such um not an ignorance to well I suppose yeah an ignorance you don't know till you experience it do you it's not a selfish thing it's not cowardly it's it's the scariest thing in the world it used to be my safety valve if this doesn't go I can do that I didn't want to leave everybody I just couldn't stand it anymore and I couldn't stand what I felt was the burden I was putting on people Exactly that. The illness tricks you into thinking that everybody, including your baby, will be better off without you. You think, God, I was such a vibrant, great person in my mind, you know, before this happened. They can't know me like this. Well, I always think that Tim was, you know, we'd met. I've been married before. He's had a long relationship before. We'd known each other for years and we didn't like each other. Then we got together. We fell madly in love. And we both wanted it. We were both in our 30s. He was seven years older than me. We both wanted a child. We got pregnant much quicker than we anticipated. So when Matthew was born, we'd only really been together for a year. But he'd married this crazy person who was always dancing half naked on a table and then got pregnant and was kind of still almost doing the same. You know, and so he always talks about how he lost his wife. He lost the person that he had married and invested in and he was great with it I mean I've been so lucky with 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 Tim and and subsequently with Lincoln obviously you know my children are grown up but I still suffer the same illness with Lincoln and I've just been incredibly lucky but I I know that I know and I know that you will know people who haven't been as lucky you're absolutely right when I went back to the hospital they said you never needed to say that you'd not suffered with a mental illness before because it was written across your face this fear but also they said what got you better was your family you know they were there non-stop I mean yeah thank goodness for them also the suicidal stuff um, I didn't have any intentions towards hurting Jet physically similar as you but it could have got there or I could have hurt somebody else my brain was coming up with all sorts of suggestions of us getting out of this together or you know in some weird twisted way it's a kind of agency right it's interesting as well because Matty for those who don't know is the lead singer of a band called the 1975 two albums ago he wrote this song called she lays down it is a song about his interpretation of my depression as he got older. Because obviously when they were little, mummy was just poorly when she went to bed. But then ultimately I would explain my illness to my children, which is why they have such an empathy in it, you know, with, with, with mental illness generally. When he was only um, one, Tim had, was doing a series in Australia. I had made the decision because he was missing his child so much that I would fly to Australia. And the night before I went, this massive depression came on. And I can't tell you what it was like to go to the airport and get on that plane with this depression. And when I was in the air, this is, I told Matthew this years later when he was a grown up, I would never have put this on any child. But I wished that the plane would go down in my mind. I wished that it would because then I wouldn't have made the decision. And people might go, well, there was other people on the plane. How selfish. Of course, I, you know, I, I wasn't. It was the point that I wanted something out of my control. And I thought, why doesn't it just go down 
and then I will be out of, out of this pain. And now I can't believe that I had those thoughts. Does that count as a suicidal thought? Because this is what I could never understand. I, that's how it crept up with me. I was like, I would walk down the road and I'd be like, I really hope a car could just spin, turn into me or can't they just, a, a hole in the pavement just eat me up? And does that count as it? I think sometimes as well, I, I, want, I used to wish for things like um, when I was doing the only show I've ever had to pull out of in 30 years was a pantomime in Stockport, not far from me, because I had a breakdown when I was doing it. And I was driving to work in the morning and I wanted my car to crash. I know I didn't want to die, but I wanted the pain to be taken away. I wanted the car to crash and someone to come and take me to hospital and give me tablets so that everything would go away and that everyone would understand how poorly I was. Because, you know, even though I would talk the talk, of you've got to talk about it and be just as open as if you have a physical illness. I was talking the talk, but not walking the walk at the time because I didn't want to go into a pantomime where people were struggling to to get this show on in a week and and let them know how ill I was. Of course, I collapsed halfway through it and had to to pull out of it. And, And people don't understand. My depression is... I would say 90% of the time endogenous. I can go to bed, I can be driving my car, I can be on holiday as I was once in Grenada with the waves lapping at my feet and I'll get an episode of depression. And I was doing a play at Newcastle, so Matthew was about three and I'm on stage in the play and I felt it from my feet and I always haven't very often have a physical manifestation before it happens. So I get a tinny taste in my mouth and a tingling in my palms. And I'm in the middle of a speech and this happened and I could feel the blackness coming up. And it was like one of those scenes in the films where you see people in the audience going, ha, 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 you know, like those horror films. And I'm looking out at this audience and these words are coming out of my mouth and I'm stood there and I got through and I went backstage. It was uh, two actors who were in the show and, and they said, what's the matter? And I said, I wish I had cancer. They went, what? And I said, because everybody would understand. Because you could go out now and you could say, Denise has just been diagnosed with cancer and she can't continue the show. But if you just went out there and said, Denise has got depression, they'd go, well, we all get depressed, love. We've paid good money for this. And that is unfortunately what would have happened. And so when I said that, it was because you would never go up to someone with cancer or with something really, really serious. And my mum died of cancer. You would never go up to someone and go, well, you've had this a month now and you look fine to me. Why don't you get yourself up, put a pair of trainers on and get yourself out for a bloody good walk. And yet that's what we deal with, I deal with all the time, even now, much less so. And the people I put myself out to don't say that. They are people who want to hear my story, but it's, it's an illness that is the most crippling, isolating, debilitating illness that we still have to prove that we have. I guess because mine came so out of the blue, out of nowhere, with no history of mental illness, I'm keen to know what it must be like living alongside the illness. Are there certain triggers for your depression? When my mum died, I was emotionally traumatised like any daughter would be who's lost her beloved mother, but I didn't get depression. Similarly, when Louis was born, and there was a 12-year gap between Matt and Louis for the very reason that I was too scared to have a child, and 
Tim did definitely not want a child because he was scared to lose his wife again. He didn't have me ever completely back, but, you know, he was scared to go through it again, and so was I. But then in my early 40s, I found myself pregnant. Thank, I'm not religious, but thank whatever that I do have Louis. And obviously the worries came back again. And people say, did you get postnatal depression after Louis? And it's a difficult question for me because my postnatal depression never went. So when Louis, came, when Louis arrived, I didn't get any more depressed. I just had the same sequence of events that had happened in, my, in, in, the, you know, in the previous 12 years. Louis was born with a condition called Hirschsprung disease. And this is a condition that can't be detected in, in a scan. So as far as I'm aware, I'm, I'm 43 years old now, about, you know, at this point, and I'm ha- I had to have an amnio, but I am having, to all intents and purposes, a healthy boy. I had him by an elective section, so I was more in control this time, and I was also desperate to breastfeed this time, all of these things, but he wouldn't latch on. So uh, over the first three days, we're trying all these different ways for him to latch on, and he just wasn't drinking. And the nurses said to me, sometimes with a baby with a section, they haven't got rid of all the, all the gunk that comes out. So sometimes, you know, they don't feed as well. But if their blood sugars are fine, he's okay, which was the case. Anyway, he vomited projectile. And the nurse just said to me, and um, this was the wonderful uh, Hope Hospital in Salford, and she said to me, um, okay, we're just going to pop him down to special care. Nothing to worry about. That was when the nightmare started. Um, for two weeks, they tried to establish what it was and they couldn't. I had to get lumbar puncture, all of these things. And I would go down and give him, go down to special care, give him a little syringe of milk and we'd be going, oh, he's kept the milk down, he's kept it down, he's kept it down. And then the nurses would ring me in with, they'd say, Denise, he's brought it up again, he's brought it up again. So basically he wasn't pooing and he wasn't feeding. After two weeks, we took him to Alderhay. And after six weeks, he was diagnosed with Hirschsprung disease, which is where, for those people who don't know, because I certainly didn't, it's where between the fifth and the twelfth week of pregnancy, the nerve endings of a part of the bowel don't form. So before 1948, which is only 10 years before I was born, before 1948, he would have been a child that didn't thrive. That's what they would have said. He's a child that didn't thrive because that was the first ever operation for Hirschsprung was 1948. The thing is, they don't know how much of the bowel is infected until they go in. They took nine inches of his bowel out. Anyway, when he was 20 months, he got what we thought was gastroenteritis because I'd had it. And after 12 hours in the hospital here, I said, no, I need him to go to Alderhay. And they didn't question it. They sent me. They took him straight to surgery. They said it was appendicitis. After four hours, he hadn't come back. And it was adhesions caused by the surgery. And we nearly lost him again. But the thing is, all of this time, Laura, I didn't get my depression. So Matthew's born a completely healthy baby. And I am plunged into this black psychotic depression. And then Louis born, a very sick child, thriving now, thank goodness. And I'm absolutely fine dealing with it. And yet my last episode was last September. I'm driving up to the northeast with my sister. I've got Matthew's God Kids in the car with my friend Lisa. And we're singing along. And the only time Bella and Pixie are allowed to swear is when Matthew's song People is playing. So they are they are so excited that they can swear <laughs> all the way to Newcastle. So these 12 and 10 year old kids are going, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 with this, <laughs> with this song of Matthews that I hate. And, uh, and I'm a typical mother going, oh, I like this song, this is the melody. I'm trying to paint the picture of this really happy, crazy, chaotic car journey. I am not overthinking. I am not distressed about anything. Everything is fine. And we get to 
the angel of the north. And when I get there, I will say, oh, I'm home. And I feel the unwelcome visitor starting to arrive. The way I describe it is that my life goes from technicolor to black and white. And this happens within 30 seconds, Laura. And I am almost zombie-like, trying not to be. Every little bit of joy, the joy of going to see my sister, within 30 seconds, I don't want to see anybody. I don't want to talk to anybody. And um, the next morning, I woke up. And I never know when I go to bed in a depression if the next day is going to be better or worse. And it was worse this time. I picked up my phone. And on an impulse, I recorded a real-time episode of depression because I thought, for 30 years, I've talked about my illness in the past tense. You know, I'm sitting on a show like Loose Women, but people are always hearing about things in the past tense almost, you know, when I had my last episode. And something in me made me pick up my phone. I don't know what it was because I know if Lincoln had been with me, he would have said, (laughs) don't be thinking about that. Put the kid phone down and go back to bed. You know, I know that would have happened. But I impulsively chronicled this day and I said, I will let you know how tomorrow is. So I then, the next two days, chronicled the different stages of this depressive episode. I was thinking that I was reaching out to the people who always look to me for a little bit of support for their own wellness, you know, and it had gone viral and... What was so powerful about that is that so many people said, I have just shown, and this is why I get choked up, I have just shown my mum, my brother, my husband, my sister, um, your thing, and they've given me a hug for the first time in years because they've never able to understand what it's like. And by visually seeing it, they have been able to understand more because I don't have your voice. I, I can't put things into words. That's actually September Gone was my last episode, which would have been called Breakdown. So I've done very, very, very well to go over 12, 13, 14 months now without an episode. I felt proud of myself that I'm a survivor. And not just that, but, you know, I'm nearly nine years sober and drug free. And of course, that, you know, I went down that road stupidly to try and stop the pain. You know, I wish I'd been kinder to myself. I wish I hadn't worked through all the pain because, you know, there is an element of the show must go on. It's in our DNA as performers. But sometimes the show doesn't have to fucking go on. Your life has to go on and that's more important. It's such a little thing when I had to pull out of that pantomime because the reason that I had continued on for so long when I was sitting on the stage as the Wicked Queen, I could see all the audience turning red. I mean, it was that, it was so horrible and weird. And, and so I collapsed on the dressing room floor and Tim had to come and get me and he just said, she's not coming back. Now, you know, in any other job, you'd go to the boss and say, I can't carry on, I'm not well. And Sue would take over your work or something. Somebody went on and read the part for two days. In two days, somebody had learned the part and went on. The world didn't end. But let me just tell you one thing that I remember and it will put it into perspective. It, we always remember the bad comments made to us, but the, the most hurtful thing ever said about me in a newspaper was in the local paper in Stockport. I remember it said when I had to leave the pantomime, it said, Denise Welsh walked out of of the pantomime today, disappointing thousands of young children who had been looking forward to seeing her play the Wicked Queen. It said Denise Welsh, in inverted commas, cited nervous exhaustion as the reason for, but then it said, but, and I will make a fictitious name, Susie Snodgrass, playing Snow White, went on despite a broken wrist and kept the audience happy. 
And that just summed up to me the lack of understanding then and not so much now. I read somewhere that it said to try and explain what depression is like to someone who hasn't had it. It's like drowning in a shower. I love it that you show the working side. The the Not only are you trying to, you've got to earn, you're trying to provide for yourself and for your family, but also you're... That's yourself, right? It's your identity. This is who you are. This is this. You're an artist. That's how you create and you make. You're a working mum, and you're also that's who you are. I can remember years ago when I only had Matthew, but I was doing Coronation Street, and I remember doing a down the line interview to Lorraine Kelly, and it was when G- I think they were GMTV there or some whatever they were called, and they were having their annual Get Up and Give campaign, and for the first time, one of the beneficiary charities was Mind. And I was very open, you know, in as much as three minutes gives you to talk about the postnatal depression. But I said, but look, look where I am now. Yes, do I still have depression? Yes, I do. But look, I'm on Coronation Street. I've got a healthy, thriving child who I love very much and loves me. And it's just to say, you will get better. And I remember Lorraine writing to me. She wrote to me personally and she said, we have never, ever had as much response than to you talking about mental illness. Because people weren't, Laura. You know, even this is 24 years ago, people were not talking out. And there would be people say to me, you're very brave. And I think, I don't know why I'm brave. All I'm trying to do is to say, I won't let this unwelcome visitor, this monster, rule my life. And by me saying, look, if you are that person now, today, sitting on the end of a settee, having lost two stone, not being able to eat in the blackness of a depression or a psychosis where you don't know what's happening, you will get better. It may take, I mean, obviously with yours, yours was complete psychosis and it's much more difficult to rationalise around that time when you're going through what you were going through in your head. The fact that we are talking out, I just know, means so much to, to people because people still don't do it enough. shatter so many of these horrible stereotypes and stigmas you prove that you can look beautiful and yet suffering you show that you can still work and earn and still be suffering that you can have a kind of idyllic pregnancy all the stacks kind of uh, you know all the facts are stacked up you know that you should not have got this illness and you have you've also given yourself permission haven't you like permission to go you are unwell like and everyone's gone oh I see it now it's invisible but you're being completely haunted right now by something invisible you and I have no more control over what happened to us after having a baby than we would have after getting a serious physical illness that obviously that sometimes you know some people develop diabetes you know, serious illness after having a child. They have no control over that. What I have come to terms with is that I have zero guilt now about what happened to me. But what I do have guilt and shame about is how I chose to deal with that with alcohol and drugs. I wish that I had listened to people more. I wish I'd given up earlier. And I wish I could redo some of Matty's childhood. (laughs) It's hard being the child of a mum who is drinking. If it starts to hurt those you love, if you're rowing with your partner and you don't remember why, and it's causing pain to your children, then and, and if you're arguing against those who tell you you have a problem, you probably have one. And I just wish that I'd listened more to those people because that's where my shame, you know, guilt is very different to shame as well. I have a lot of shame for the behaviours that 
drugs caused, you know, you lose your moral compass and it was a horrible, horrible time. But the fact is that I now have a great relationship with my children. Matthew and I have discussed at length issues raised because of, you know, my drinking at times. And at least nowadays, when I get an episode, I don't blame myself because when I was drinking and I would get an episode, I always blame myself that that's what's brought it on. Now I know that giving up alcohol doesn't cure depression, but it damn near stops compounding it. I was just about to use that word compound. You gave that language to me before and now I really use that because you can't control the science of what happens to you. If you get poorly, that's not your fault, as you say. That that word compounds that you taught me, it's so... Because you, you've got to give yourself the best possible chance, right? Yeah, you have. You've got to give yourself the best possible chance. And then, as it, you know, we know it's going to come. Mine now will last about three or four days in the main. But it, when I was drinking, it was just... And then, of course, I was doing the drinking and the drugs to try and make it stop. And it's a it trap. was just a vicious a trap. circle for 15 years. Yeah, a trap. You really are pure proof that you can completely recover. And not only that, you can wear it as a badge of honour and... You just do that and you've helped. I see you do it. You've really helped me too. So thank you so much and thank you for taking part in today. Well, thank you so much. If you have been affected by any of the themes in this programme, head to the episode description for resources and helplines. Zombie Mum was produced by B. Duncan with original music by Hugo White. It was mastered by Rob Fincham. The executive producer was Hannah Walker-Brown. This is a Broccoli production. Next week, I'm chatting to Remy Sade. Here's a sneak peek from our conversation. When I went online to look for people in my position or with the same experiences as me, there wasn't anything available at that time. That was like 2016. So there were mums, but they didn't have the same like setup as me. They weren't in uni. Most of them were married. Most of them were white women. They had like families and like old money. And I was like <laughs> basically a kid. <laughs> so.